Thanks for listening to Matt McLaughlin History. Become a subscriber to receive exclusive bonus episodes, ad-free listening, early access to all episodes, and special member-only events. Click on the link in the show notes or visit patreon.com forward slash mmhistory. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Thank you very much for joining us. Before we get started on this week's podcast, a really exciting announcement. Peter Hart's book, The Gallipoli Evacuation, is now available to pre-order on our website. That's right, pre-order the book. It'll be out in September, but get your hands on a copy early because anyone who pre-orders the book will also receive an exclusive behind-the-scenes interview with Peter Hart that includes wonderful audio from Gallipoli veterans telling their story in their own words. It's absolutely extraordinary. In many ways, it's even more exciting than the book, but the book's pretty good too. So get your hands on the book, pre-order it now on our website, and get that exclusive interview that you can download straight away, and then you'll get the book when it comes out in September. So Peter Hart's The Gallipoli Evacuation, now available on the Living History website, which is livinghistorytv.com. That website again, livinghistorytv.com. Get your hands on the book. It's going to be something really special. A Living History Production. This is the Living History Podcast. Broadcasting live across the airwaves. Hello and thank you for joining us on Living History. This week, a topic that I think a lot of us are going to be fascinated to hear about, we are going to talk about animals during the First World War. Now, something that potentially gets a little bit overlooked, but obviously, particularly during the First World War, the the involvement of animals was absolutely essential. So I'm really looking forward to hearing more about this. And to join us to talk about this, it's Michael Tyquin. So, Michael, thank you very much for coming on the program. Pleasure, Matt. Now, as I said at the, the top of the uh, the interview, it's something that potentially gets a little bit overlooked, but animals were absolutely essential to the way the First World War was conducted, weren't they? Um, very much so, and, and not only the First War and military, but civilian society at the time across Europe and indeed everywhere else, including Australia. Uh, it's very, very hard, I think, for people nowadays to understand just how central animals were in day-to-day life, say, in Australia. And I'm talking mainly about horses, but we'll, we'll digress as we come into the war. So horses were everything. They pulled ploughs, they delivered bread and meat, and they pulled ambulances and trams and so forth. So they were quite a central part of uh, early 20th century living in most countries. When war broke out, were the nations that were involved in that war, were they prepared as far as animals were concerned? Did they have horses and did they have messenger dogs and, and all the animals that were eventually participated in that war? Was that ready to go at the outbreak of war or was it something that they developed during the course of the conflict? No, I think most uh, nations were rather unprepared. And if we look at 
Germany, which is odd given that it, it, I suppose you could argue with Austria and Hungary, started the war. In 1914, the Wilhelmine army would require, say, an estimated 600,000 horses on mobilisation. And and that number exceeded its peacetime military requirement by almost 500,000 horses. So, you know, in August 1914, they had a big task ahead of them. Where were they to get these animals from? And the common challenge across all the belligerent countries were if you pulled horses from civilian occupations, that meant harvests couldn't be bought in, that meant ramifications for food and other supplies. So I think uh, your listeners will understand readily that uh, pulling horses from one sector into a military sphere was fraught with peril. Just talk to us a little bit. We, 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 when we say animals, we mean more than just horses, don't we? What what were the roles of animals uh, across the board during the wartime? Well, 1914, there were very few vehicles uh, in any of the armies. For example, the Australian Army in early 1914 only had two motor vehicles. So horses particularly, but quite early in 1915, as we, we will see in Anzac and, and the Western Front, we look at mules and donkeys, and then with specific application to military purposes, we look at dogs and pigeons uh, in both cases for communications. But generally, the bulk of animals that we're talking about are horses and mules. They were the they took the brunt of the war. Prior to the First World War, we'd uh, been through the Boer War. Did the Boer War teach uh, lessons which would then be applied during the First World War? It did, Matt, and um, fortunately, I think most countries learned, particularly Australia, with reference to quarantine, and we'll come back to that perhaps later in the in the interview, but um, some of the key lessons that were learned in the Boer war, war were the importance of good horse breeding, and, you know, people talk about the light horse and the bush ethos and so forth, but in the two decades Prior to 1914, horse breeding in Australia was not particularly well regarded. And the best horses that we did breed were all exported to overseas military buyers, particularly Japan and Germany. The other lessons that were learned in the Boer War were the importance of horsemanship. In other words, how to look after your horse. And this this created issues with the... British Army because most reinforcements were infantry that were then uh, rebadged as mounted infantry or yeomanry, and they had absolutely no idea how to care for horses. And we'll come back to this later when we talk about the Western Front. Acclimatisation was the other key lesson and um, the importance of uh, not just releasing all the horses back to your own country once to, once a particular campaign or conflict was finished, because in that case you, you're importing diseases and other other issues. So uh, that they were important lessons from uh, the Boer War, and of course Australian horse losses in that conflict totaled about twenty five thousand animals. So that not a small number. So that works out to a, a casualty rate or a morbidity rate of about. 70%. But the overall British loss in that came, campaign was staggering. It was over 320,000 horses. And it was 
the Boer War was long regarded from a British point of view as just um, just a disaster. But uh, we'll 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 get off this and we'll look at now World War One if you like. Well, the thing that fascinates me when we talk about something like horses, animals in general during wartime is perhaps even more so than mechanised vehicles. They don't look after themselves. They need food. They need veterinary care. You know, they need they need places to sleep. They need places to rest. How would these how were these animals and these these groups of animals incorporated into the army, and how were they looked after? Well, all armies at the time had an allocated number of horses. So, for example, a typical infantry division, if we're talking about Australia, would have about 5,000 horses. And these would be used for officers' mounts, for pulling general service wagons, for pulling uh, other bits and pieces. And, of course, the artillery absolutely relied on horses completely in the early years of the First World War, right through to arguably 1918. So to manage the horse stock, you had to have a group of professional people to look after them. So we have the medical corps to look after soldiers and for for animals, we have the various veterinary corps and all the belligerent armies uh, in 1914 had a fairly well-established veterinary corps, although in Australia, it was still new. We only deployed about 100 uh, officers and and, uh, other ranks to the war in 1914, uh, but not everybody was in the same boat. Later, when the United States joined the first war in the Western Front, they did not deploy any formed veterinary units and lost a staggering number of horses in the first few months they were there. So the veterinary corps of the various countries were particularly important. And of course, doctrinally, the Australian veterinary corps was mirrored on that of the British Army, and the, and the two worked very much hand-in-hand uh, hand as the war progressed, as did the Medical Corps. Men who served in the, in the Veterinary Corps, where were they being sourced from? Were these people that had generally worked with livestock prior to the war, or were men being trained up as, as the war went along? No, a bit like the, the light horse, Matt. When we talk about you know light horse, we think bushmen and so forth, but that's not the case. Um, many of the Veterinary Corps people were non had a non-rural background, apart from the professional university graduates who composed the veterinary officers, uh, a lot of the other ranks were drawn from urban backgrounds, and we're talking about uh, farriers, uh, horseshoers, and, and other animal carers who had to be trained. And fortunately, in the few months before deploying in 1914, particularly when we're looking at um, shaking out the first AIF, the members of the Veterinary Corps had ample uh, opportunities to to learn on the job, as it were, with shoeing and clipping horses and all sorts of things to prepare the first AIF to deploy to, to well, Europe, but as we know, ended up in, in Egypt. Anyone who's spent any time working around farm animals in particular knows that they're they're quite high maintenance. They eat a lot of food. They need water. They need shelter. Talk to me about logistics involved with animals, particularly horses and mules during the First World War, because the thing that always strikes me is to bring up the food required to feed a large number of horses. You need a lot of horses to bring up that food. There's a great irony in the, the logistical requirements 
to keep animals fed and watered in the, particularly on a battlefield is is quite extraordinary. Talk to me about logistics that were involved in having just so many horses and other animals uh, on the battlefield. Yes, you're quite right, Matt. Um, horses and other animals often ate their own weight in in forage before they actually did any work. Um, so this was always a huge issue. So forage, uh, feed, uh, and water were the two big challenges for those looking after animals, both on the Western Front and, as you can imagine, on the in the Middle East. So if we're looking at the campaigns in Palestine and Syria, where camels were the new beast to be uh, added to the army stock of animals to be to be catered for. Now, the forage or the food was a big issue for all armies uh, throughout the war, but particularly for Germany and Austria-Hungary as the war drew on, the uh, forage issue became a colossal problem. And we know in the, in the Middle East that lack of uh, good food really brought the Ottoman camel logistics system to a crashing halt. So again, you could argue perhaps in, certainly in the Middle East that um, had it not been for issues of forage and their own logistics, that the Ottoman um, response to Australian incursions would have been a bit more robust and, and, and lasted for longer. So you could imagine in the desert areas, bringing water to animals was, a, was an issue. Um, and you might remember that General Maxwell in the Middle East actually pushed a, a, a railway line out um, close on the heels of his advance to Damascus simply to supply water. On the Western Front, uh, food was a constant issue and most horses throughout most of 1916, 1918 were probably undernourished. And um, the same applied to to men, of course. Um, the conditions on the front just didn't allow delivery of food and water when they were required. It's not just horses, as we mentioned before. There were there were messenger pigeons, there were messenger dogs. What, what other animals were, in, were you likely to see on a battlefield during wartime? Uh, well, mainly mules would be the, the biggest, um, I suppose, grouping of animals you would see uh, in a battle area. They were used uh, extensively both in the Middle East, uh, Gallipoli, for example, both the Indian Transport Corps and the Zion Mule Corps deployed with, um, with mules. And General Birdwood also had purchased almost a 1,000 mules just for carrying water on Gallipoli. But as you know, Matt, apart from Suvla and in the south, in the north and Hellas in the south, the area and the terrain around Anzac just precluded any wheeled transport. So apart from mules, there were no horses used in that campaign in that particular area. Um, but on the Western Front, mules were really the backbone of, of the logistics chain. They, they did a great deal. And uh, Australian soldiers were very uh, high in their praise of mules. You know, they were hardy. Um, they, they pulled more than their, their weight, as it were. Uh, and they didn't require quite the same uh, element of care that perhaps a horse would. When we talk about animals on the on the front line obviously those animals are going to be exposed to the same dangers as the humans that are around them how were animals treated in the event that they got sick that they got wounded what sort of care was available for animals in the front line 
Well, let's just talk very, very quickly about mechanisms of wounding. And these were certainly on the Western Front, um, the same problems that faced the soldiers, the artillery, shrapnel, uh, and later in the war from aerial bombardment and gas. Um, and these were all issues that um, affected animals to a larger or lesser extent. And then in later in the war from, say, late 1917 on the Western Front, as the Germans started or from 1918, when the Germans started their retreat um, westwards or eastwards, rather, they started to deploy what were called keltrops, which were a sort of a, a metal spike. And they, these were strewn across um, the battleground and animals trotted on them and, of course, uh, crippled a lot of animals. So to deal with, um, with wounds, and we'll talk about disease perhaps later, required a fairly sophisticated evacuation system. And the veterinary evacuation system almost mirrored, mirrored the military medical system, whereby a, an animal was um, treated at the front and if it was able to, it was left there and it, was, it would carry on. If not, it was uh, evacuated rearwards through a fairly sophisticated system back to animal hospitals uh, further back in the rear in France and even in Britain. And to do that, um, various means were used. There were horse ambulances, horse-drawn horse ambulances. Barges were used very effectively in France. Uh, and, and the railway, of course, we, we used to get sick animals back and then treated and then forwarded back to the front where they were required. All of these, as you can imagine, required a lot of people. Um, the veterinary hospitals in the rear were very, very large uh, establishments. The one and only Australian hospital was established just west of Calais. It could cater for about... 2,500 animals, and its personnel numbered about 500 soldiers. So these were big, big units we're talking about. So generally, the evacuation system worked well, uh, bearing in mind, of course, that if there was a, an artillery barrage or gas or anything, an attack on at the time, then obviously it, it all came to a screeching halt. I've been doing work with uh, Peter Hart on his new Gallipoli book about the Gallipoli oh, evacuation, yes. and one of the most moving parts of that whole story was trying to get the animals off, trying to get the horses and mules away from Gallipoli. And and sadly, the ones that couldn't be taken off had to be shot on the beaches when they, when they left them. And it was obviously a great source of distress for the men who'd spent so much time with these animals. Have you come across that in your studies? Have you come across a feeling of a bond between the men and these animals? Or did they simply see them as tools to help them win the war? No, I have, Matt. That's a, a very valid point to make. And um, certainly in the Middle East, it, at the end of the war, uh, a lot of light horse diggers, if you read their letters and diaries, were very, very moved um, when their, their mount had to be destroyed. And a lot of the diggers actually shot their own horses rather than have them you know, seen herded off to some other place and shot or um, killed en masse, as it were. But, but that said, um, also letters and diaries um, reveal a, a similar affection between or a bond between the soldier and an animal with a camel and a mule. Um, we all know the famous story of, you know, Simpson's donkey, which, as it turns out, was actually taken over by an Indian group and was 
survived and was taken to the island of Madros, after which he seems to have been lost to history. But um, yes, a lot of a lot of soldiers were were close to their animals, but not just horses. Well, talk to me about some of those other animals. We touched on it earlier, but uh, apart from just horses, I mean, I, I love the stories as well about there was a famous story in 1917 about the Australians capturing a pillbox during an attack in the Ypres salient. And while they were there, a messenger dog, a German messenger dog arrived with, a, with an order to hold out to the last against the Australians. And by that time, they'd already taken the, uh, the pillbox and they adopted the dog as a, as, as a mascot. What other animals were on the battlefield? And, and tell us about some of the relationships between the soldiers and those animals. Well, messenger dogs were used um, by by all sides and were quite quite effective and and took after uh, took a lot of care too. But they generally had their own carers, as we still do now with uh, dogs in the army, uh, and their bond is was very very close. And uh, you often see them in portrayed in in old photographs of the time. Perhaps some of them I've actually seen wearing a little tin hat and so forth. They had a, a, a harness or some webbing which would you would put your uh, message in or sometimes even something that was in short supply, perhaps some uh, some medical drugs and so forth, and they would be sent back to the front. And uh, they were, you know, pretty successful. But like all other animals, they were prone to being gassed, which caused terrible injuries uh, to the dogs. And pigeons too were the other key communications uh, tool when the lines went down and radio, as you know, were still quite primitive at the time. And pigeons too took a lot of care. And we, uh, we know that there are a lot of mobile pigeon lofts deployed to the front. And you, again, you can see photographs of them. These pulled around by uh, a vehicle or, or a, a horse. Uh, and, and you'd see all these little cages with pigeons in them. And these two had their own carers and they had to be looked after, fed and so forth, and uh, occasionally required veterinary treatment. How many numbers are we talking here? Maybe we should just focus on Australia since we're an Australian program. But how, like how many, for example, how many horses did Australia send overseas and how many came back after the war? Well, Australia exported just under 170,000 horses from uh, Australia. Uh, mules were basically bought in theatre, and most of those were imported from the Argentine, and they were quite a large sort of a beast. But uh, as we know, only one horse was returned to Australia, and that was the lesson learnt from the Boer War. And the horse, of course, was uh, General Bridges' Mount uh, Sandy, and he was the only one to come back. The, the reason why so many horses were destroyed, both in France and in the Middle East, was the fear that these animals would bring back various diseases, particularly glanders, which would have just decimated the uh, d- domestic Australian livestock industry. I think about somehow they got through the system, but about 60 horses went back to Canada and caused absolute havoc. So Australia made the right decision. Uh, it was a tough one to take, but that explains why only one animal came back to Australia after the war. General Bridges was, of course, killed at Gallipoli, and it was quite symbolic, wasn't it, that his horse was brought back uh, to Australia after his death? Absolutely, yes. He he was uh, shot, shot by a sniper, I think, in May, from memory, very early on in the war in 1915. As you've been talking about this, Michael, it, it, it makes me realise that 
the animals were exposed to the same horrors of the battlefields as the humans were, but the animals didn't really have a choice or an ability to understand what was going on. And it leads to the modern way that we remember animals now, particularly in times of war, that that animals that serve in the military today receive medals just like their human counterparts. We've seen on the Western Front and in London, we've seen memorials to animals going up. Where, Where do you stand in this whole philosophical concept about the poor dumb animals that were sent off against their will or without their, without the ability to understand and the way we as humans then choose to memorialize them after the fact? Oh, well, you raised two, two really complex philosophical arguments. The, there's the question of memory and there's the question of, you know, how sentient are, are animals. Um, as much as possible, animals were cared for pretty well in, in World War One. I. I mean, uh, you know, looking at on the transport ships going from Australia to the Middle East, every care was taken uh, w- with the horses. Uh, they were well fed, they were well looked after. Um, where possible preventative measures were used in the Middle East, for example, special tarpaulins and bamboo posts were deployed to provide shade in, in really hot areas. And on the Western Front, we had um, anti-bomb uh, earthworks designed specifically for horse lines to help prevent shrapnel injuries. And also we had, although not with the same success, what were called horse respirators, the the equine equivalent of gas masks for use during uh, gas attacks. So I think those looking after them did care for animals and the very fact that you had veterinary cause testifies to that fact. With respect to memorialising animals, well, I don't have a hard view. Um, you probably have seen the quite poignant memorial outside the Australian uh, War Memorial in Canberra, which is a sort of a a shattered piece of metal with a horse's head, which sort of says a lot, but but I can leave it to your listeners to perhaps Google it and and find a photograph and interpret it as they wish. Um, Medals, yes. uh, There are some famous examples not so much in Australia but certainly in the British Army and Navy where animals were recognized you're probably aware of something called the Dickon Medal which is the animal equivalent of the VC various animals horses dogs and even a cat uh, have been have received that award over time since uh, World War One so I suppose you know from an historian's point of view I think Animals, when we talk about it, the discussion can be a bit over-sentimental, if you follow my drift. Um, There are some quite saccharine commentary on animals in war, which just get away from the reason why animals were deployed in wartime settings in the first instance. But as I said, I I won't buy into that. I think everyone is entitled to their own opinion. It's such an interesting part of the story, isn't it? Because when I see these memorials going up, and including the ghastly one that's on the battlefield of Pozier now, to, dedicated to animals, <laughs> I, I, I understand there's a need. It's, it, I won't quite say it's guilt, but there, I think there is a feeling amongst us these days when we look back and we say, well, the animals didn't have a choice. We just lumped them in there. Next thing, they were frightened. They were in a battlefield, a situation completely not of their making. 
And I think it says as much about us as it does about the animals that we feel this need to include them in the glory and to remember them. And, and, and I think it's a great sentiment. I think, it's, I think it's, it's quite wonderful that people don't overlook the role of animals. But you're right, it's such a complicated mishmash of emotion and nostalgia and philosophy. And it's, it's, I find it quite fascinating. And obviously there's no dedicated answers to these questions, but I, I find it absolutely remarkable the way, particularly after all this time, we look back and we do want to remember animals that served on the battlefields. Well, I'm glad you raised that point, Matt, because it, the, the statue in Pozieres is, is a very recent thing. So how long is it since the war has finished, if we look at 1918? Over 100 years. And uh, veterans from that war and even in the Second War and those who were around in 1918 didn't feel the need to memorialise animals. So I think that's a point that we need to consider as well. It's a quite a modern-day thing with uh, somehow feeling guilt or uh, thinking about, you know, the poor animals, which is fine. That's a natural human emotion. But I come back to the point that as far as possible, animals were well-treated during the war. So just to give an example, the the veterinary drug bill for just the Egyptian expeditionary force in the Middle East in 1917 alone was £100,000. Well, it's a staggering sum in those days. So people can't say that people, uh, animals were, were ill-treated. Certainly they, they suffered, and, and sometimes when I read accounts of artillery going into uh, action, particularly you know, out of the Menin Gate and so forth, it almost brings tears to my eyes. But I think we have to uh, look at these things in the cold light of day and, and it, as you said, the issue of memorialization raises some some interesting issues. I think it's fascinating as well to cast even a little bit forward. I mean, this discussion is about the First World War, but just as an aside, noting well into the Second World War, particularly the Germans were still so reliant on animals in the Second World War as well. That uh, I, I heard a quote the other day that said the, the British army was more mechanised in 1918 than the German army was in 1940. And so throughout the Second World War as well, this reliance, particularly on horses, was was just never-ending. And it's something that throughout the 20th century has just gone hand in hand. When men have gone off to fight, they've often taken animals with them. And it's, I think it's good that we remember after all this time, we remember that connection. We're free to interpret it as we like in terms of the philosophy and the, the morals of the situation. But I think it's just fascinating that whenever men have gone off to fight in the 20th century, they've taken their, their animals with them. You're right. And... and uh... Germany, as you say, had a, had a vast uh, number of, of animals, but so too did the Soviet Union. Uh, and we forget that, I think, they had absolutely enormous numbers of uh, horses and uh, mules in their uh, fight against Nazi Germany. Uh, Poland was the same. And if you look at the British Army in India, uh, they still used horses too in areas that, <laughs> interestingly, we're redeploying horses to in places like Afghanistan, uh, where horse uh, veterinarians, army veterinarians are also deployed, not just to give the locals a hand in terms of, um, you know, supporting the civilian uh, civilians, but looking after animal army animals which have been deployed to those theatres, uh, and this is a, a current issue for us. 
Well, Michael, it's just such a fascinating story and, uh, you know, we could go on and on about it because there's just so many layers to it and it's such a... The, the, the connection we have with animals is such a part of being human that I think it's hard to escape these feelings when we talk about wartime. It's just been, it's been really great. Thank you so much for coming and uh, sharing your knowledge with us about this important topic. A pleasure, Matt. Thanks for listening. Don't forget to subscribe and leave a review for the podcast and visit livinghistorytv.com for more great history content. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.